buenos días, Hub City. El pastor me dio permiso para hablar en español, así es que vamos a leer en español. Just kidding, I just want to see if you're awake. <laughs> Please raise. That sounds good, huh? Uh, we continue with the series of Exodus, so we're going to be reading precisely about uh, from the book of Exodus 4.29 to Exodus 5.5. And then we're going to go to Psalms 136 to 10.16. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses. And Moses performed the miracle signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. After this presentation to Israel leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so? Restored Pharaoh. And who's the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their task? Get back to work. Look. There are many of your people in the land, and you're stopping them from their work. Give thanks to him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. He's faithful, love endures forever. He brought Israel out of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He acted with a strong hand and powerful arm. His faithful love endures forever. He gave thanks to him who parted the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. He let Israel save through. His faithful love endures forever. But he hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who led his people through the wilderness. His love endures forever. You may be seated. Appreciate it. How's everybody doing today? Good? It's, a, it's just a rule. I don't know if you know this or not. It's just a rule that whenever it's cloudy or raining outside, people are uh, more uh, bored at church or something like that. So I'm going to need you to help me today a little bit. You got you to gotta amen me a little bit more, all right? Um, there's one. All right. So, um, hey, thanks for being here today. Um, this fall, we're reading through the, the book of Exodus together, studying this Old Testament book about God's people leaving Egypt. And that's what the word Exodus means. It means escape, or it means a way out, or an exit. And that's what we're reading about, God's people who escaped their captivity in Egypt. But the reason we're taking the time to read this is because it's not only about them getting out, it's also about us learning how we get out. Because at some point, every Christian has to leave their old life behind. Let me say that again. At some point, every Christian has to leave their old life behind. God wants to get you out of Egypt, out of sin, out of captivity. But he doesn't want to just get you out of Egypt. He wants to get Egypt out of you. And, 
And so we'll get to that a little later in the series. After God gets them out physically, he's got to get them out uh, spiritually. But Exodus is this great metaphor for our own spiritual journey. It's our journey to freedom in Christ. We want to live in freedom. That we don't want to be miserable while we're here and then get to heaven, even though that is okay. Like, we get to heaven. We want to experience some of heaven now and live in freedom. But this story that we've been reading, at least these first three weeks, it starts long before Exodus. It starts back in Genesis with a man named Abraham who received a promise from God. He actually received three promises, a covenant from God. And it's the last promise that we've really been spending our time talking about where he, God told Abraham, he said, that I'm gonna make your, your family tree into a great nation. And those people, that nation, that people, your family, I'm going to be their God. I'm going to be their God. God had never said that about people before, but now he was promising that this family, everyone who could trace their lineage back to Abraham, that he would be their God. And what he meant is that he, all, he would always be committed to them. He would be committed to them, not because they earned it, not because they deserved it, but because he promised he, he would be, because they would be his people. And the reason that this matters to you and me, some promise that God made a man 4,500 years ago, is because when you became a Christian, the Bible says that you became part of that family. Did you know that? This is what it says in Galatians 3.29. It says, and now that you belong to Christ, you're true children of Abraham, you're his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That you didn't just say a prayer, you didn't just come to a church, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, supernaturally, you became part of that family tree of God's people. You belong to God's family. And that means that God is committed to you like he was committed to them. He's with you like he was with them, and it's not because you earned it. It's not because, you know, you deserve it. It's because he promised he would be, and God never forgets his promises. And so this week, we're going to get to see just how committed he was, because man, he was and is committed. Now last week, we read about Moses and the burning bush, the famous story of the burning bush, and, and now we've reached the showdown, God versus Pharaoh, God versus Egypt. Moses has returned to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, and in the exchange between Moses and, and Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh asks a question that sets up everything else that we read in the plagues, because that's really, we, don't, we couldn't read it today because it extends five or six chapters, but we're really, we're talking about the 10 plagues today. And so this exchange between Moses and Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh asked a question, and Carolina read it for us, but I want to just read it to you again. It's at the very beginning of Exodus chapter five, verses one and two. Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh, and they told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival of my honor in the wilderness. Look at verse two. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh, and who is the Lord? This is the question. It's that question, and who is the Lord that is the precursor to what God, to what God does? And Pharaoh's not asking because he's curious Pharaoh's not asking because he wants to learn. He's not saying, oh, and, and who is the Lord? Let me get my notepad. I want to learn about this God of yours. No, he is being condescending. He's not interested in the Lord because it was tradition for the Egyptian Pharaoh to be, to be viewed as a God. He's the most powerful man in the world, and 
he, he, was, he was viewed as a god. And so when Moses shows up and tells Pharaoh that someone more powerful than him is giving him instructions, Pharaoh is insulted. Who, who is this God you're talking about? I'm, I'm a God. Who, who is this God you're talking about? And in a way, you could say that everything God is about to do is an answer to this question. If I could paraphrase this, it's almost like God says back to Pharaoh, like, oh, oh you want to know who I am? Okay, let me show you who I am. And, you know, it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, God didn't need 10 plagues to deliver his people. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't just setting them free. He was also sending a message. God could have just snapped his fingers and his people would have been free. But he was doing something else uh, besides delivering his people. He was sending a message. He was answering the question, who, who is this Lord? Who, who is Lord? And a few chapters later, God tells Moses the reason that he's taking his time and using 10 different plagues instead of just making it happen. He, 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 he tells him a few chapters later, he's going he's gonna to tell him exactly, tell us exactly why he takes five or six chapters and, and, and a few months spread out to, to do this instead of just making it happen. It's in chapter 9. God tells Moses, he says, I'm doing this to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. This is why I'm doing it. I'm going to get my people out, but I'm also doing it because I want the world to know now and on a Sunday morning in Louisville, Kentucky, 4,500 years from now, I want people to know who I am. And so I'm going I'm to show off a little bit. I'm going to display my power and spread my fame throughout the, throughout the, uh, the earth. And so God wants to not just show Pharaoh who he is, but he wants the whole world to know who he is. And who is the Lord? And we're going to get to that. But uh, this is a good time to stop and consider how we respond when God gives us instructions. It's so easy to read this story and to be like, Pharaoh, what an idiot, you know? Yay, God, I'm on his side, I'm not on that guy's side. What a moron. Why, would he, why didn't he just let the people go? Like, why does he keep trying to fight God? Man, it's so easy to read the Bible and think that we're always on the good team, you know? But this is a great time to stop and just consider, how do you respond to God when he gives you instructions? Maybe the last time you felt like God was telling you to let something go. How did you respond? Whether maybe it's through the Bible or a sermon from your pastor, or maybe it's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you feel like God is asking you to do something you don't want to do, how do you respond? Sadly, most of us do exactly what Pharaoh did. Our pride, our egos get in the way. And instead of obeying God's instruction, we wonder, why, why should I listen? Or we don't really say it that way, but we kind of, in our minds, rationalize. And we think, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter? And all of us have areas in our lives where we know for a fact that God has spoken. You're not unsure 
You don't know if it's God or not. You're not sure. of it. Like, There's no question about it. You know God has spoken, and he's spoken again and again and again. And every time somebody gets up here to preach, you're like, is there a bug in my house that they're listening because it's like they're talking directly to me? Or, or there's a song on the radio or a podcast you listen to or a conversation with a friend, and God is trying to get your attention over and over and over again, and you know it. You know it. There's no question about it. But you refuse to let it go. You know right now in this moment that God is saying to you, let it go. But you won't do it. And that's where Pharaoh finds himself. Pharaoh believes he knows better than God. And over the next six chapters, God will make it clear who he is and just how much power he has. But can I be honest with you and tell you that um, this, this was a challenging message to put together this week. There are some weeks it's easier than others. Uh, this week was not one of those weeks. Late into the night last night, I was still typing, um, calling some of the staff members and trying to, to, to externally process. And here's why it was so challenging. It's not because I didn't know it was coming. Long before we started this series, I knew the 10 plagues were coming. Spending a lot of time thinking about it, reading, trying to get information. But the reason that it was challenging this week is because I have this tendency when I put together sermons to always think about the cynic because I am a recovering cynic. I tend to always think about the cynic or the critic. And so all week as I was working on the sermon, I heard the cynic and the critic in my head. And I kept thinking about that person who struggles to be a Christian because they don't like the version of God they find in the Old Testament. It's a real thing. And if that's you, if you're feeling that way, I want you to know I get it. It's a real thing. You're not alone. And all week, I just, I kept, I kept hearing the voice of the cynic who would say, why would you want to believe in a God who would rain down punishment on the Egyptian people? I mean, if you know the story, you know that over the next six chapters, God's going to turn water into blood. He's going to release frogs lice and flies. He's going to kill their animals. He's going to give people boils. He's going to send a destructive hailstorm. He's going to destroy the crops in complete darkness. And in his final act, he will kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian. To which we go, I don't know if I like that. That feels, that feels unfair. That feels, uh, I don't know, excessive. But then I was reading through the Psalms this week. I, I, right now I'm spending a lot of time trying to read through the Psalms just personally for me. And then I, so I was reading through the Psalms this week and I love the living word of God. I love how God moves the pieces around for us. If we want to, to find him, he, we will find him. And, and so I'm reading through the Psalms and I came across these verses that we read in Psalm 136 where it said in verse 10, give thanks to him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He brought Israel out of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He acted with a strong and powerful arm. His faithful love endures forever. And I thought, wait a second. Why didn't it bother them? I mean, I'm sitting here wrestling and agonizing over the, the powerful display of God, wondering if this is fair or excessive. And then I read the Psalms, which are the songs of the Christians, the people, the Hebrew people, and not only are they not bothered, they made a song out of it. It's like second in the worship set. 
Doesn't bother them. They are rejoicing and celebrating what God did. And, and, and we're like, how could they do that? Why did they, like, like, what do they know that we don't know? That's what I was wondering. So I'm reading this. I'm sitting out in the backyard, and I'm reading this. And, like, I'm just like, wait a second. What did they know that we don't know? Like, they're not hiding it. They don't have like, you know, they don't, they don't have little meetings on the side to have these conversations. If you have an issue with this, you can come over and talk about it. They are broadcasting it and writing songs about it. Hey, God killed the firstborn of every Egyptian. Come on, give thanks to God, everybody. And so I'm just like, man, what did they know that we don't know? And I want to try to answer that question for you, and I'm going to answer it for you in two ways. And the first answer is going to be a little bit technical. And then the second answer is gonna be a little bit personal. So if you'll give me just a few moments, I wanna answer it for you technically, and then I'm gonna answer it for you personally. All right, so let's look at the technical answer first. We read last week where God told Moses his name. His name is Yahweh, which is the best way we know how to pronounce it. You really can't pronounce it, but they did their best and put the consonants together and give us Yahweh. Moses, God told Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but my name is Yahweh, and Yahweh means I am who I am. We, read, we, we talked about this. And so <clears throat> when we read God's name, there is an elusiveness to it. Moses said, who are you? Who do I tell people that you are? Here's Pharaoh again asking, and who is the Lord? And God says, I am who I am, which is, it's elusive. We can't really understand what it means to be who you be because we define ourselves by outside factors. We're a father, we're a businessman, we're a mother or a friend, but not God. God cannot be defined by anything outside of himself. Are you still with me? Okay, so this means in order to know who God is, you have to look at what God does and what God says about himself in order to define him. You can't look at anything else to define God. You gotta look at God to define God. What did he do and what did he say he was? So even as I say that, it's kind of difficult to grasp. Like, um, I, I don't, I don't, we don't know how to really do that. So let me, let me explain it to you like this. If I said to you today, if I said to you, hey, listen, I declared to you, I'm a good father. I'm a good father. You, to determine if what I said was true, would use some type uh, of criteria to determine whether or not you believe me, Okay. And you all have a list, whether your list is the same or not, doesn't matter. You have some criteria for what you believe a good father is and a good father isn't. So let's say one day, you know, you're hanging out at the Sun Valley Sports Complex and I'm out there with my kids and you see me just lay into one of my kids, just being vulgar and yelling and just tearing them down because they made a mistake in, in a game. What would you think? You would think, he's not a good father. You, you, you would, you, because you have some criteria, you think, you know, a good father wouldn't like scream and yell and be vulgar with their kids. That's not something a good father would do. And so you would assume and determine that I'm not a good father, regardless of what I said, you would say he's not a good father because I saw him, you know, yelling at his kids. You would be using some other outside criteria besides what I said about myself to determine if what I said about myself is true. But you can't do that with God, because God is. That means if God says he's a good father, then he is. And you have to look at what he does 
to define what a good father is instead of assuming you know what a good father is and then seeing if God is that. Are you following me? Whatever God does is, and that's what defines it. So, so if God says he is good, instead of asking if something God does is good, we've got to start with the fact that God is good and then determine what is good based on what God does. Are you with me? Now, the reason that I took that time to give you a brain cramp is because the 10 plagues take on a certain challenge in the modern era that did not exist in the Middle Ages or the Victorian ages. People reading this story in the 1400s didn't question God's judgment or God's wrath. In fact, they questioned mercy. All they knew was like, oh, like here's a sword, I'll cut your head off because like you said something mean about my mom. You're dead. Eye for an eye. What they couldn't understand was mercy, but they had no problem understanding judgment and wrath. But in our postmodern era, we struggle with stories that we read about like the 10 plagues or other places because we assume that we're smart enough to judge God. And we try to define him using our own criteria. So we ask questions like, how can God be good if he would let something like that happen? And that question, while you're more than welcome to ask it, is based on the assumption that we know how to define good better than God does. And wouldn't you admit today, like if you were just being honest, wouldn't you admit that there are all kinds of things in your life that at one time you thought were good that turned out to be bad, and things you thought were bad that turned out to be good? Yes, that's true for all of us. But we come to God with the assumption that we could define good better than God. Or we ask, why would God let someone suffer like that? And that question is based on the assumption that we're smarter than God. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about grieving or lamenting. Look, when you're going through pain and darkness, you have all kinds of questions for God. Man, feel those feelings, grieve, I get it. We, we spent time in the fall, talk, or last fall, talking about lament. Like, man, you just get in there and feel what you feel. But at some point, you gotta turn back to God and say, but God, because God is. God is the definition. But we have to be careful that we don't try to define who God is based on outside criteria. Instead, what we should do is start from the belief that God's ways are always the right way. And if we struggle with something that he does, then we need to go to him and we need to say, God, there is something that you need to teach me that I don't understand yet. Because I know you're good. I know you're just. I know you're right. Jackie Hill Perry says it this way. She says that if if God is righteousness, that means he cannot sin. And if God cannot sin, he cannot sin against you. Which means that if God is doing something that you feel like is unfair to you, it's your responsibility to figure out what you don't understand yet, not God's responsibility to make it, you know, to not do that to you. or to or, Because God is, he is who he is. Through his actions and his words, we define him not through what we believe is true. Are you still with me? Okay, this is still the technical answer. Hang with me, okay? God sent 10 plagues on Egypt as judgment. 
judgment. Why? Because God hates sin. He hates sin. God hates evil. God hates injustice. God is perfect. God is righteous. God is just. God is good. He cannot coexist at any moment with sin, with evil, or with injustice. And Egypt had spent 400 years just with the Hebrew people, worshiping other gods, profiting off of mistreating people, and most importantly, enslaving his people, his people, who made a promise. He made a promise to be committed to them. You remember that movie Taken when Liam Neeson says, I have a particular set of skills and I will find you? Liam Neeson had a limited set of skills compared to God, but somebody had his child. God is about to and does bring judgment. So we shouldn't read stories like this and think, well, that's mean. I don't, I don't, I don't like that he did that. We should read it and think, whoa. If he can do that, I want to make sure I'm on his side and not on the other side. I want to make sure I'm for him and not against him. I don't want to spend my time trying to fight with God and trying to change who God is. If he's going to display his power and fame and I can see what he can do, then let me tell you what I want to do. I want to be on his team. I don't want to be against him. And Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're supposed to walk around being afraid that God's going to strike us by lightning? I hear people say that all the time. I can't step foot in the doors of that church. He'll strike it with lightning. People need to get new material, you know? And you know what I always say? If he was going to strike it with lightning because somebody walked in it, he'd have done it a long time ago. You think you're that much worse than everybody else? So fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we should be terrified of God or that he's going to strike us with lightning or he's going to give us cancer. But it is worth considering for a moment, how much do you fear God? How much? It's it's a worthwhile question. When you read stories like these 10 plagues, How much do you fear him? Knowing who he is and what he could do, how much? Are you worried at all about disobeying him? I mean, when I say to you, God hates sin, when I say to you, God hates evil, when I say to you, God hates injustice, is there any part of you that's worried at all about your disobedience? When the Bible talks about fear of the Lord, it's, um, it's not talking about like being terrified. It's talking about a reverence or an appreciation for who he is. So think of it like this. Imagine that I, that I called Allie up on stage, which I'm not doing, Allie, and I handed you a flower vase, and I told you that the vase was an antique, and it was worth $25 million, and I needed you to carry it back to the kitchen for me. How do you think Allie would walk with that vase? Think she'd run? 
You think she'd hold it with one hand? You think she'd sit it down while she did something else and let all the little kids play around it? Not my kids, right? No, that's not what she would do. That's not what she would do, and that's not what you would do. You would make sure that you were careful. You would take careful steps. You would hold it tight, and you would fear dropping it. Now, here's why you would fear dropping it. Allie would not fear that if she dropped it, I was going to kill her. She would, she, would, she would fear dropping it because she knows the value of what she has. That's why she would fear it. And so when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not saying you should be worried he's going to strike you with lightning. It's saying that you should know how precious it is and how valuable it is. Or think of it like this. Four different times I've had the opportunity to leave the hospital with one of my brand new children and put them in the new car seat. Most of them got a new car seat. You know, them, them younger kids, they don't get their own stuff. But, and, uh, and so you take the car seat and you put it in the car. Do you think I sped on the way home? Do you think I was doing four lane changes on the interstate? No. Man, I was going slow. My wife's like grabbing my arm. Like there's a red light up there. Be careful. I see brake lights and we're, we're, we're just easing. It should be a 15 minute drive, but it takes 30. Why? Because I know what I've got with me. This is precious. This is precious cargo. And if you saw me driving home from the hospital the first time with my brand new baby, and you saw me on the Snyder texting with my knee on the steering wheel making lane changes, what would you think? You would think, well, first of all, he's an idiot. But second of all, you would think, does he not know? Is he crazy? So the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom, meaning that you'll never really begin to know what you need to do until you know who he is and appreciate and respect and revere who he is. So we read stories like this or stories about God's judgment. There should be some part of us that feels the gravity of who God is and who we are and what he can do. And if that is not your response, but your response is like, so? I think that's ridiculous. In a way, you're saying what Pharaoh said. Why should I listen to that? Who is the Lord? But I, but I, but I will admit that there is a part of me that feels bad for the Egyptians. I have to admit that. I mean, if you're a parent and you hear about children dying, your heart breaks. And you begin to wonder, what did they do to deserve it? And can I tell you what they did? They breathed. They breathed. They were human beings. They were prideful. They lied. They lusted. They murdered. They were envious. They were jealous. They were sinful people. And not one person who died or lost something was innocent. Every single one was guilty, and they were rightly judged by a God who had every right to do what he did, and he could have done more if he wanted to. And every act was just and right and good because that's all he can do. But if you're smart, you're thinking about another question. Wait a second, if because they were human beings and they just breathed and they were sinful and they got God's judgment, what about, what about the Israelites? What about the Hebrew people? What about me? I'm a human being, I breathe, I lie, I cheat, I lust, I'm envious, I'm jealous. Wait a second, if God judges people just because they are sinful, 
What about the other people? And what about me? And I love that question because that's the second answer I want to show you. It's the personal answer. This is why the psalmist did not see what happened as a tragedy. Because before God sent the 10th plague and killed the firstborn Egyptian sons, he told Moses to tell the people something. And I want to read it to you. It's in Exodus chapter 12, and it's kind of long, but it's too important not to read, so i got to read it, so stick with me, okay? I think it's going to be up on the screen for you, I think. So it's chapter 12. Nine plagues have already happened. Going to the 10th. And it says, while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on... This month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family's too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. Hang with me. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides on the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Hang with me. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency for the Lord's Passover. On that night, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's a lot of detail, a lot of information. But I want to make sure you understand what God just said to them. God told Moses to tell the people that he was going to come in the middle of the night and execute judgment against Egypt. He was coming to execute judgment, except against the families who selected a sheep without defect. And they were to kill the animal and take the blood from the spotless lamb and smear it above the door of their home. And whenever God saw the blood of the lamb, he didn't execute his judgment. There was one thing, just one thing that separated the Egyptian families from the Hebrew families. It wasn't their moral record. It wasn't their sacrifices. It wasn't their opinions or their kindness or how they voted. It was whether or not They were under the blood of a spotless lamb. That's it. That was the only thing that decided whether or not they received God's judgment or his mercy. The blood of a lamb. To which you might say, well, that's not fair. (laughs) Exactly. It's not fair at all. It is completely unfair. What's fair is judgment, because that's what we deserve. What's unfair is mercy. And what separates someone from being inside or outside God's family is not their performance or their goodness or their kindness. It's one thing. It's the blood. 
It's the blood. Now, you're smart. You go to church. You know where I'm going with this. You've probably already figured out why this is so important. See, you and me, we are all the things the Egyptians were. We are Egypt. We're evil. We profit off of injustice to people. We're envious and jealous and lustful. We do good things and feel prideful. We are Egypt. That is you and me. We're sinners. And we deserve God's judgment, plain and simple. No one in this room could ever do enough good things to be able to go to God and say, God, I don't deserve what they deserve because I've done better. Can't do it. You deserve judgment. And we struggle to believe we're that bad or that judgment is, you know, isn't unfair. But you have to believe with all your heart that you deserve God's judgment. Because you know you. I'm not talking about what everybody thinks you are. I'm talking about what you know you are. You know what you think. You know what you feel. You know what you do. And so you have to believe with all of your heart that you deserve God's judgment, that you are not a good person. But God knew that too. God knew that you were not a good person. God knew that you were not sinless and that you could not get it together enough. And so he sent his son, Jesus. And do you know one of the ways they described Jesus in the Bible? They described him a lot of ways. Do you know one of the ways they described him? The spotless lamb of God. He was without sin, spotless, without defect. God sent a spotless lamb in Jesus Christ to you and to me. And if we believe in him and we receive him, God doesn't judge us. He gives us grace. And that's not fair. It's not fair. And thank God it's not. That's why we can say give thanks to the Lord. Because we deserved it. But he gave us mercy. He gave us mercy. He gave us grace. And if you don't believe in judgment, you won't value grace. For most of us in the room, the reason that we treat grace so lightly is because we don't believe in judgment. Like we haven't really been saved from anything, so it's not that big a deal. But until you believe and understand that you deserved the plagues, you deserve the death, you deserve the judgment, but you got grace. God handed you the vase. God is not your buddy. He's not your homeboy. He's not the big guy upstairs. He is a holy and righteous God who hates sin and he hates evil. And guess what you are? Sin and evil. When you embrace that and believe it, you will begin to understand just how much he loved you. That instead of giving you what you deserved, he sent a spotless lamb in Jesus Christ. And when he looks at you, he does not execute his judgment because the blood is a sign that you are his and he is your God. And he's committed to you. And so I'm going to pray for us, and in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to take communion.
And I know that for many of us, we have taken communion many, 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 many times. But my prayer this week has been that today, maybe it would just be a little bit different. Maybe just a little bit. Maybe today when we take that bread and we dip it in the juice that represents the blood of Jesus, it would just be a little bit different because we would understand that that the blood is the only thing that saves us. That's it. It's the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. He loved you so much that he gave you mercy and he gave you grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you did not give what I deserve. Thank you, God, that you do not hold my wrongs against me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that uh, you would forgive us for taking your grace so lightly. You would forgive us for thinking that you're an option. You would forgive us for thinking that we can play fast and loose with you. And that today, God, maybe we would feel the gravity and the weight of who you are and what you can do. And we wouldn't be afraid of you, but we would feel the gravity and weight of grace and mercy.